Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. Let's pray together. Oh God, we give you thanks for a wonderful Sunday. We're grateful for time to gather and worship, to praise your name, to have our hearts lifted up as we just offer you our best and thank you that you give us your very best too so that we can flourish in this life. We pray now for your Holy Spirit to continue to move among us Open our hearts and minds to what you say to us today in this place. We open your word now and listen carefully for your voice. Strengthen us, O God, as we hear your word and then as we begin to do your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. May the people of God say, Amen. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 today. If you want to turn to that, we'll we'll be reading verses 6 through 15, but I'm going to talk just a little bit about the first five verses. We're not going to read them, but uh, you'll see in those first five verses that the question of how money and ministry can coexist in healthy ways, that question has been around forever. (laughs) Here we have the Apostle Paul writing this very strange and kind of forced thanking you in advance note to the church at Corinth. Have you ever gotten one of those emails that starts out thanking you in advance. You know what I'm talking about. That's, that's what this is. Paul is writing that to the church at Corinth for some bountiful gift that they have promised to the church at Macedonia, which is in a different community. Paul is even, even sending some people to arrange for this gift, and he invites for the Corinthians to be ready so they are not embarrassed. Be ready so that you are not embarrassed when these folks come to get your gift to take it to Macedonia. It's okay to laugh at this. It really is funny. It's even funnier if you go to the Greek and try to understand what's going on. It's just really bizarre and hysterical. It is yet another preacher clumsily handling the money talk with Christians who really don't want to hear it again. That's what you've got in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 5. Schuyler, you know exactly. You, you know what this is. You throw in a little encouragement, some aspirational overstatement, the promise of fruitfulness, a dash of shame and guilt, and you got a good combination of stuff here in the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 9. You just pass that out, and Paul says, get ready so that, so that it may be ready, the gift may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. That's verse 5. Come on, Paul. No extortion here, clearly, but you definitely put the arm twist on the church at Corinth. We all know that's what you're doing. 
This recent sermon series called Enough has been, frankly, a bit uncomfortable for most of us. We are talking about some good stuff, discovering joy through simplicity and generosity, but it means we've had to talk very plainly about money in the midst of some very uncertain economic times. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gets beyond his clumsy opening words and actually dives deeply into what it means for God's people to be defined by generosity, defined by generosity as a spiritual gift. Our fundamental calling as God's people is to receive God's blessings so that we can share them with all the families of the world. Now, what does that look like? What does that actually look like? Let's read the rest of chapter 9 to find out. Beginning in verse 6, let us hear the Word of God. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of, each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us." For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you, and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. This is so much better than the first part of this chapter. Paul does reveal deep spiritual truth about God and the nature of our generosity. What is the source of the generosity of God's people? Well, it is overwhelming gratitude for the gift of Jesus, which calls out of each of us a desire to love and bless the world with our time and our resources. God promises to provide and replenish, not in the way of the prosperity gospel, but in the way of enough, all people having enough through God's provision shared with each other. That's what he's talking about. It's interesting to see how this plays out in the actual giving practices of Christians over the last 20 years. Christian young people, you, you may be surprised to know, Christian young people with just starting out incomes tend to give three times as much to church and charity as their non-Christian counterparts, three times as much as their, as their colleagues. Now, that statistic holds true for a while as they grow in age and income. It holds true until their household income hits about $75,000 a year. 
And then what we find is that we Christians are no more generous than our non-Christian friends. Isn't that interesting that there's that break point at $75,000 a year? We suddenly become no more generous than our non-Christian friends. I can think of a lot of reasons for this. Mortgage, car payments, kids in school, college, Halloween costumes, and on and on and on. But none of that really changes our call to be defined by a cheerful generosity that is rooted in God's provision for our lives. We look to the Scriptures to see if we can find some help about how to, how to set up our lives, how to put our lives together so that we can always be defined by generosity that is a response of gratitude to God. We can look through the New Testament and we find very clearly a call to this urgent simplicity of life which expects Jesus to come back at any moment. When you became a Christ follower back then, you sold everything you had, you gave the money to God's mission, and you simplified your life so that you could spend your time with the poor and oppressed and helping other people meet Jesus. Back then, we were all thinking that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. That's where our minds were. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We've got to get everything ready for him. Paul is building churches in this kind of an environment, and they are very intentional, disciplined, evangelistic communities of faith where we are all caring for each other, holding everything in common so that we can work together for this urgent mission of Jesus who is coming back tomorrow. That's how things were as we read through the New Testament, really for the first couple hundred years of the church. Now, 2,000 years of history have passed, and we, we Christians have spent a lot of time re-understanding intentional Christian discipleship as a marathon rather than a sprint, right? Jesus is coming back, but it's probably not tomorrow. That's kind of how we've learned to process this whole thing. Now, God's call on our lives includes lifelong careers, putting children through school and college, having a home, thinking about the future, having reliable transportation, taking a vacation at least once a year just to stay healthy. We're still missionaries, aren't we? But for most of us, we are missionaries in a very different way. If we aren't careful, we lose elements of our identity along that different way. Did you hear that? If we aren't careful, we lose important elements of our identity as God's people along that very different way. We look again to the Scriptures to try to understand how to put our lives together so that we don't lose this important piece of our identity in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, what we sometimes call the Old Covenant or the Law of Moses, actually includes something very helpful and profound. Now, just want to acknowledge we are recipients of the New Covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the new one. We're not bound by the Law of Moses. We do not keep the Law of Moses, just parts and pieces, I guess. But we do find a lot of wisdom there about how to put our life together. The Law of Moses still provides, in many ways, a helpful guide for God's people. In the law of Moses, we find this concept of the tithe. You've probably heard about the biblical command to give 10% of your income to God's mission. That's what they're talking about. That usually happens through your local church. Now, as we think about the tithe, there are two corruptions in this teaching which often get us in trouble. The first one is, is fear, 
We're just afraid to do this, and so we approach it with fear and trembling. We just can't imagine how this could ever work in our own household budget. That's fear. The second one is a little different. It is sort of a self-gratification. We try to leverage the tithe, and we talk about it like this. We leverage the tithe to give to God, expecting to get something back to enrich ourselves, right? You've probably heard both of these approaches to talking about the tithe. You can think about those a little bit. I'm not going to talk about either one of those today. You can think about those later. I'd like to look at this from a slightly different perspective. I want you to to imagine that these 10 apples down here, just look at these 10 apples down here on the floor. Just imagine that these are God's provision for your life. This is your time, your wealth, your resources. This is your everything. These, uh, this is how this works. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. These nine apples here are ours to enjoy as we think about the tithe. The nine apples are ours to enjoy. Spend, save, give away to help others. Whatever we'd like to do, they're ours. But this first one, this one is holy to the Lord. Okay, this is the teaching from the law of Moses. This one is holy to the Lord. This one belongs to God. We give this one to God as an offering of praise, thanksgiving, obedience. We do that before before we touch these other nine. These first fruits by God's design provide for God's mission unfolding in the world, usually through our communities of faith. Now, when our lives are organized in this way, we live within what? The nine apples, don't we? We live within the nine apples, trusting God that these are enough for us, that this is our enough. That first apple is God's. When our lives are not organized around this concept, what happens? Well, we quickly burn through these nine apples, don't we? Woo, fast, just so fast. And we just, we just eat them up. We have to. We can't help it. And then here we go. I ate all these this morning. It's going to be a long afternoon. I'm just kidding. I didn't. We quickly burn through these nine apples, and we just have that one left there. Here we go. Yeah, that's what we do. Should be. Yeah, there we go. That's nine. Right there. That's what we have left. In in my experience, usually about August, that's what we have left. <laughs> now what happens? Well, what always happens? We have a little trouble here and there, don't we? We just get into some trouble. Maybe, maybe you have a little car trouble. What do we got to do now? We're going to have to get into this one, aren't we? We have a little car trouble. Just trying to make it. Kids need some stuff for dance and ball and soccer. Mm. Now it's September. Market is way down, way down. Still have to replace the car because I do that every two years, right? Still got to replace the car, even though the market's way down. Class reunion in October. Got to have a new suit. Don't get to go to class reunions very often. Holy land trip next February. Holy land, holy goodness, trip of a lifetime, right? God will understand. 
no problem. Just a minute. Hmm. Holy land's a good thing. But now, what is left to lay on God's altar as an offering of praise and thanksgiving? What is left? Right? Leftovers. Just leftovers. Now, I want to say, Jesus understands, okay? Jesus will accept our cores, our apple cores. Jesus will accept our leftovers. He's very gracious to us. God is patient with us, and God still works with us in spite of this display up here. But let's not wonder why we feel like there is never enough. Let's not misunderstand the emptiness which troubles our spiritual lives when the big rocks are not in the right places. Let's not blame God or culture or anybody else when we have chosen a less good way of putting our life together. In fact, let's own our decisions and their troublesome consequences. And then let's just, let's just do something about that as a people Now, let me say quite clearly, you all are a generous people. Together, we'll soon be investing nearly a million dollars a year in meaningful ministry in our community and beyond. We're stretching to three-quarters of a million dollar right now. God's mission is exploding in this place because of your commitment to it, both in giving and serving. We are having, you'll hear at the State of the Church address, we are having church family growing pains as God reorders our priorities around mission and vision. We're having the same growing pains that many of you are having in your homes, learning to trust God's provision for this. It is so crucial that we, as God's people here in this place, be more and more defined by our generosity, which comes from a place of profound gratitude for God's work in our lives. These awkward and clumsy conversations about money are are actually so very important because the closer we follow Jesus, the less we think about money as a security blanket and the more we think about it as a means to bless all the families of the world with the goodness of God, which, if we will work together, will always ensure that all people have enough, enough. No guilt, no shame here in this place. Don't hear any of that. Just hear the opportunity for a life-changing transformation in my home and in your home as Jesus helps us all discover true joy through simplicity and generosity. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Thanks be to God. Amen.